You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. So acne and rosacea, I want to talk about some of what's new. I think the main take-home messages, because we are getting really close to happy hour, um, take-home messages from the start are just be cognizant of how much we're using antibiotics. And I've started to really prep my patients from the start saying antibiotics are not a long-term therapy. We're gonna give this a try for three months, maybe six months at the most for both conditions. And if we're not getting enough improvement, then we need to move on. And we need to try and make sure that you're on combination therapy, again, for both of these conditions. And at least for rosacea, that was a little bit of a change from, I think, what I grew up with. Um, so decreasing the use of antibiotics, using more combination topical medications, and a little bit of, um, I would say, mixing stuff up uh, on our own, so being creative. So. One of the things that's changing, I think, in the world of rosacea is recognizing that rosacea is a lot of things to a lot of people. So this is not just a disease of Caucasian populations. This is a disease that Hispanic patients can get. So the two pictures on the lower right, these are two Hispanic women with more erythrotelangiectatic rosacea, along with phimomatous rosacea on the far right-hand side. Left-hand side, again, very typical, rosacea in more Caucasian populations, non-Hispanic, and impressively, rosacea in a black woman. So I think just recognizing that this is a disease that really crosses all races and ethnicities. We've always sort of known that we need to ask about these triggers. Do you ever flush or blush or get worse with changes in temperature, alcohol, thinking about demodex as a potential trigger. We're gonna talk about how we've learned more about how these triggers actually contribute to what we're seeing on the surface of the skin, which is this thick fibrotic change in the nose or the cheeks or the chin. Um, some of the vascular disorders, like the intense flushing or blushing or just fixed erythema that's on people's cheeks and how these inflammatory lesions um, occur. One of the things that it was a little bit of a change for me, maybe it's a, a sort of awakening for you, is that people with rosacea were complaining about the burning and stinging that they had in their complexion, and I'd never seen or read anything about it until the most recent reclassification of rosacea. So while you may have been hearing this in the clinic because I was, it's now an acknowledged part of rosacea. So people with rosacea can have this stinging and burning, that sensitivity, um, that is a part of this condition, and we're gonna talk a little bit about maybe why that's the case uh, in terms of the biology or pathogenesis of the condition. We're learning a lot more about rosacea from mice that have rosacea. So this mouse has rosacea, not really. Mice don't get rosacea. Um, but what's remarkable is that we can force mice to have rosacea by injecting a single protein that our immune system makes called catholicidin. A single peptide from the skin can be injected and recapitulate all of rosacea in these mice. So let's talk about what we're learning about catholicidin and what causes rosacea and how all these triggers that we just talked about contribute to what we're seeing on the skin. So thermal stimulation, whether it's heat or cold, whether it's a hot or cold beverage in our mouth or something that's happening on the surface of the skin, as well as UV exposure to the skin can trigger toll-like receptor 2. 
When toll-like receptor two is activated, it in turn activates proteases. So these are enzymes in the skin. Their job is to now wreak havoc. Demodex is on here, and it's next to those proteases because it in turn encourages more of this protease, protease activity. This is all important because we can target these things. So UV, UV protection, great. We're recommending it anyway because of all the risk of skin cancer. But remember that rosacea happens in those populations of people with darker skin types who never thought they were at risk for skin cancer anyway. So this is a little bit of a mind shift potentially for us and those patients. Demodex, if it's triggering more of this enzyme activity, we can target that. We talked a little bit, um, I think this morning or yesterday, it's all blending together, um, about the use of oral ivermectin maybe for periorificial dermatitis, the cousin of rosacea. So using oral topical ivermectin, and even some studies showing that permethrin, old, cheap, topical permethrin can be as effective as topical metronidazole for patients, all targeting demodex. When these proteases are activated, they go on, they work on cathelicidin, so that protein that was so important to creating all of rosacea in mice. When cathelicidin is um, activated by these proteases, it starts to create all kinds of a mess. And so we can block some of this conversion by using azelaic acid, again, ivermectin, and even doxycycline. The activation of cathelicidin causes the inflammatory changes that we're seeing in the skin, so that flat pinkness, the pink papules and pustules. But it also can contribute to the vascular disorders, the flushing, the redness, the burning. And some of these things, like alcohol and thermal changes at the bottom, are acting independent of the pathway above it on something called a trip vanilloid protein. So this is a channel that's actually found on keratinocytes and nerves. So when you think about that burning and stinging that's happening in the skin, it's because there are cytokines and proteins in the skin that are mediating this very quick neurogenic inflammation flushing, blushing reaction. So it's not all this very slow process that's up higher, but there are nerve-mediated changes that are happening from the bottom. And it's not just nerve-mediated changes in terms of sensations from nerves, but nerves contribute to inflammation. And so we don't have a whole host of uh, targets for this right now. One of them is beg borrowing and stealing chromalin from mast cell disorders. And so we know that chromalin can help block mast cells, which are a source of some of the triggers for these trip proteins. We can also, while we can't entirely prevent some of the vascular changes, we can at least try and block what we're seeing on the skin or sort of try and undo it with topical medications that cause vasoconstriction, or we can target them with laser and light therapies. Some of the flushing and blushing, I have a few patients who take a beta blocker. I make sure that they don't have asthma or emphysema ahead of time, but it helps them feel like they can go out into certain social situations, so they take it PRN or uh, as needed for those times, but they do pretty well with a low dose of carvedilol. 
Now we have a whole lot of medicines that we tend to use, and we don't have a lot of information about how these drugs like azelaic acid, ivermectin, dapsone, metronidazole, doxycycline, help with all of the ways that inflammation causes changes in the skin, but we have lots of studies showing that they just work. We can see clinically on the skin that people have fewer papules and less redness. And so overall, reductions in inflammation. So my hope is with this schematic, while it's a little bit busy, recognizing that there are triggers, we have some very specific ways that we can intervene on those triggers. And depending on what we're seeing on the skin, whether it's more the inflammatory lesion changes or versus more of the vascular mediated changes, we can choose our treatment in sort of a rational way based on what that patient is experiencing and what we're seeing on the skin. So this cartoon disturbs me, and that's why it's so powerful. Because I feel like faces can have papules, but papules should not have faces. <laughs> so this little, it's almost like you want to love him, but he's so not. Um, but it's a reminder that creams are such an important part of treating rosacea. And I felt, I feel like my uh, first gut reaction with so many people with rosacea was to pull out an antibiotic. But we have so many topical options that we need to try and use them. Um, so while not attractive, it's still effective. So what are the take-home points for topicals? One of the things is Topicals are a mainstay of therapy. I try and get every person on one. The great thing is that while these patients with rosacea can have that more sensitive complexion, these medicines usually are so well tolerated. So I can give them to people and be reassured that they're not gonna have a problem and they are reassured. I think it's also important to recognize that things like topical metronidazole and azelaic acid, they work outside of their label. So while we used to have this idea that we could neatly put rosacea or the person with rosacea into a nice category of erythrotelangiectatic, papulopustular, this is a spectrum, and people can get all of the forms at the same time. And topical metronidazole can help both with the papules and pustules, and it does that really well, but it's also gonna help with some of that flat pinkness, which is not just vascular pinkness, it's inflammatory pinkness. So not all flat, patchy pinkness is just fixed. Part of it is in part there because of uncontrolled inflammation in the skin, and topicals can get at that. So for example, in the trials, when we really dig into them, it shows that it does work on erythema. And using topicals with orals, just as we, I think we're really used to doing this with acne, we start an antibiotic and a topical, and then I set people's expectations. I say, well, you're gonna use both of these for a while, then we're gonna stop the antibiotic and you're gonna continue the topical. And we're gonna try and ride out that improvement as long as we can. And if maybe you need a couple courses of antibiotics two, three times a year, I'm okay with that. I'd like it to be as few as possible, but I don't want you on an antibiotic forever. So the combination of both oral and topical in trials has been shown to work better than each agent alone. And also that the use of that topical afterwards can reduce flares. So it does cut down on how quickly that next recurrence of multiple papules and pustules comes about. The challenge is we don't have a lot of data at all about how well one topical medicine works with another topical medicine. Um, I pretty frequently will have people come in and say, you know, I did pretty well in that metronidazole cream you gave me, but it's not quite enough. Can we add something else? I'm like, 
Sure, let's you know, add some azelaic acid. We'll see if the insurance covers it. So now they've got two topicals on board. Um, I'm kind of curious, how many people use combination topical medicines for rosacea? Yeah, so this is a really prevalent thing, but we have almost no data to guide us on how to rationally combine these things together. Um, and so one of the other things that I've started to adopt is since there's no topical chromalin, but some of these studies say that this can be really helpful, I kind of MacGyver it. So um, this is the MacGyver of my generation. This is the MacGyver maybe of your generation. I prefer my MacGyver. Um, and so this is the way I tend to kind of, you know, pull out my toolbox, see what I can get from my insurance formulary for that patient, and again, try and approach it with a little bit of rational thought about what I'm seeing on that patient. So knowing that metronidazole and azelaic acid have the most data and data showing that they can help prevent flares, they're usually my first go-to for a topical medication. If I'm seeing people with lots of little pinpoint papules and pustules, I tend to add on nexpermethrin or ivermectin as a cream. Chromalin, if somebody is just interested in something different, and especially if they're getting more of that flat pinkness or if they have um, more of that stinging and burning, I'm trying to target some of that immediate burning from those trip uh, vanilloid um, channels. And so we mix this up. This is the same recipe that you would find on the Masto Kids website for topical mastocytosis. It's a bottle of that nasal crumb mixed to any kind of facial cream, and they can use it once or twice a day. It's really well tolerated. We rub it on babies, so it's um, pretty safe for people's faces. The other thing is the bromonidine or oxymetazoline. So these are nice, again, also for the people with the flat pinkness that we think is more from blood vessels. Um, these are also nice if people have a lot of telangiectasias and you're thinking about doing a laser or light intervention because these medications can clamp down the tiniest blood vessels and you can see more of the fixed telangiectasias left behind. So using the, the topical to then guide laser therapy um, has been reported to be really effective. So not alcohol MGD, but meibomian gland dysfunction. So this is ocular rosacea. People with ocular rosacea have so much inflammation of their eyelid, as you can see this kind of almost like pink highlighter around her eyes. That inflammation, you can see here, if you just kind of pull down people's eyelids a little bit, this isn't how an eyelid should look. You shouldn't be able to see, the comparison to normals on the left here, the openings of these glands. You can see that pale yellow gland because the skin around it is just so inflamed. So if you pull that lid down and see this, I was always taught, oh, put them on doxycycline, they're gonna be on it now because we're treating the ocular rosacea. The people, also get inflammation of the surface of the eye because these little glands secrete an oil. The oil goes out over top of the water tear film and prevent its evaporation. So just like we have kids get in the bathtub, we get their skin wet when they have eczema and then we seal it in with say Vaseline, that's what these meibomian glands are doing for our eyes. People with rosacea, they can't make that oil film, so the water just evaporates right off the surface, and it can lead to real damage on the surface of the eye, along with inflammation. So we don't have to just do oral doxycycline anymore. We have options. 
the simplest things, lid hygiene. So I feel like if I walk into a room and I see somebody who has really inflamed lids and I say, you know what, why don't we use some baby shampoo and some saline eye drops? They're gonna look at me and be like, are you kidding? I was already on Google, I already gave that a try. What else have you got for me? So what's interesting is there is some data showing that taking that same metronidazole that they're rubbing on their cheeks, their chin, and their forehead, if you just rub it on the cutaneous part of the eyelid, it's going to treat the inflammation that's causing ocular rosacea. I've just avoided using an oral antibiotic when I can use a topical, something they maybe already have on the counter at home to treat another part of their rosacea. And yes, low-dose doxycycline, I think, was the go-to so often, at least for me, or used to be, uh, for ocular rosacea, and it can work, but the question is, when are we gonna stop it? Ocular rosacea is not just going to go away on its own. So I called one of my friends who's an ophthalmologist. He said, well, one thing we recommend is omega-3 fatty acids. So an oral supplement has been shown to help. Um, they say that the content can vary based on the brand, um, but the goal is just to have them find a brand and take 250 milligrams a day. This is really well tolerated. Occasionally you can get some bad breath from the fishy uh, derivation of the omega-3 fatty acids, but otherwise people do pretty well. And then he said, well, why don't you prescribe them cyclosporin eye drops? And I was aghast. I was like, what? Should I prescribe cyclosporin eye drops? That sounds so dangerous. And then I put it in perspective. I'm like, I'm prescribing methotrexate. I'm you know, recommending people inject things into their bodies. Like, come on. And he said, it's better than doxycycline or, or saline, and plus, you're tough, you can do this. So it was really kind that he reminded me that I have an inner strength and I can draw on it. So this also convinced me um, I'm slightly competitive and what I realized when I pulled all the prescriptions for Restasis out of a large claims database, radiologists are beating us <laughs> when it comes to prescribing Restasis. I'm not gonna lose to radiologists. So I have started prescribing uh, Restasis. Sorry, I'm using the brand name because it's just easier to say, but it's uh, ocular uh, cyclosporin. And there's a newer medication he said that he's using a lot. So it's this Lafitagrast or Zedra. Um, I think the goal with medication names these days is just to be absurd with X's and double I's. Um, but this is a lymphocyte function uh, inhibiting antigen, uh, LFA1. So it essentially blocks uh, T cells from becoming active and causing inflammation. They're both used very similarly. They're both uh, approved for dry eye. And essentially that's what people with rosacea have is dry eye due to this meibomian gland dysfunction. It's one drop twice a day. And the side effect profile, the talk, the data, the way it sounds to me, is the same talk that I would give to people if they were gonna use Elidil Protopic, so topical tacrolimus or pimicrolimus, because the most common side effects are burning or irritation, happens in about one um, out of 20 or one out of 10 people, lasts for the first three minutes, and it goes away in two or three weeks. So just like I would tell somebody, hey, I'm gonna give you this topical pimicrolimus, you're gonna use it twice a day, it's gonna sting and burn at start, and then it's gonna get better as you keep going. That's what people experience when they use these eye drops. So they're very low risk. These products have been out for almost a decade and they're actually used in children who have allergic eyes. So there's lots of data showing that these things are safe in a large number of people. 
So the other thing I learned uh, when I first started training was that when you touch a laser, you're always pointed at the ground and you don't put it in people's eyes. Somebody did that. So on purpose, they put a laser right up close to the eye, so not in the eye. And they were trying to treat somebody's rosacea. And the patient came in and said, you know what, my dry eye is a lot better. This is great, thank you. Well, accidental discoveries. When we do things to treat inflammation around the eye, it improves the inflammation that's blocking that meibomian gland. So again, we can avoid long-term antibiotics by just creatively targeting the inflammation in other ways. So maybe this patient was gonna get laser or light therapy anyway for her cheeks. Now we can say it's a two for one. So this is a study uh, looking at how well um, IPL, so this is a 590 nanometer filter applied to the skin just on the lower eyelid. Treatment was done every three weeks, four treatments. Fluence was about nine to 11 joules. And you can see the difference from the eyelid on the upper right here with this redness and kind of puffiness, almost causing the lid to kind of puff outwards with an ectropion to a much more normal lid here. And this is just a closer view, less pinkness, and importantly, the healing of the inflammation on the surface of the eye itself, because now that tear film is uh, more functional. This is another study showing that we used to think of laser and light therapies as treating the telangiectasias in the vessels. And this was a study showing that we can actually treat inflammation. So anything pink, lasers are not smart. They're not going to target just the blood vessels. They're gonna tar target anything that is pink. And part of inflammation is that vasodilatation. And around those vessels are all those immune cells. And so the laser is targeting in this study, this is a, a study from Korea. They used a long pulse NDAG laser. This is uh, four treatments over 12 weeks, showing a resolution in this inflammatory pinkness on uh, the cheeks of these two patients, as well as an inflammatory papule, several papules on the cheek of this patient with improvement over the course of this 12 weeks. So just lessons learned. If we're treating inflammation of the lid, maybe we can target inflammation of the rest of the skin as well using laser and light. Again, ways that we can try and reduce the need for extra medications and extra antibiotics. This is not a durable response. So again, we're targeting inflammation and the inflammation is gonna find its way back there. But using a combination of topicals and laser and light, I think we can get the same effect that you know combining an oral antibiotic for a short pulse and then maintaining with topicals. So this is a pretty common question for patients with rosacea. I thought I had it figured out. I thought that we had initially said, okay, alcohol causes rosacea. Oh, no, it doesn't. And then a paper came out saying, oh, alcohol and rosacea. And I was a little bit worried. What did this study show? It showed that yes, in the nurses' health study, there were more women who ultimately were diagnosed with rosacea if they drank alcohol. But it was not that every woman who drank the most alcohol got rosacea. And it wasn't that people who drank no alcohol were totally protected. The people who drank moderate amounts of alcohol, basically two to three alcoholic drinks per week, had an increased risk of about 12 to 50%. Again, not stunningly higher. Um, 
the problem is not so much that it causes rosacea, but probably causes a flushing, which makes it easier for people to be diagnosed with rosacea. And for our patients with rosacea that have this problem, and microbrews are showing up everywhere. We've got like three wineries in our area alone and four breweries. This is stuff that people want to enjoy, so how can we help them to do that? Well, antihistamines can block some of that flushing. Uh, naloxone is an opioid blocker. I don't tend to uh, prescribe that so much, but know that it does exist. Um, and so patients can live with it. That flushing is not necessarily going to become fixed. Certainly it's nice to avoid it, maybe those antihistamines, and just choosing when to drink alcohol you know, on occasion is uh, helpful. So, the other side of this, the same group who looked at the effect of alcohol looked at the effect of uh, caffeine. And so what they found was that for the people who had the highest caffeine intake, and coffee was the main source of caffeine, they had a 24% lower chance of being diagnosed with rosacea. So the lowest group drank about uh, 10 milligrams of caffeine per day. That's a, basically the amount that's found in a hot chocolate versus the people who had the highest caffeine intake, the protective effect, drank five cups of coffee on average a day. Five cups, that's that much. Flushing, though, is really triggered mostly by the heat of these drinks. So if people are trying to make use of caffeine and its protective effect, really what you want to go for is a cool caffeinated beverage. Um, so the thought is that the caffeine is causing a vasoconstriction. So keeping in mind a couple of things. Alcohol is not the cause of rosacea. It will make people who are predisposed to rosacea, that it's just gonna be obvious. For people who are bothered by that, caffeine can be a balance, um, and sometimes switching to cooler forms of caffeine can be a way to get around the flushing that goes with heat. And it's really the heat sometimes that's in the mouth. Um, there have been a million articles in the last, I would say, three to four years associating rosacea with everything, um, and so particularly uh, diseases in the gut. So this is a, a systematic review showing all the studies that uh, have looked at the association of the gut and rosacea. Um, the main take-home point here is there is no consensus. There's no great way to screen for these things, and it is not recommended that we screen for these things. If a patient comes in and really expresses a concern or this came up on a chat or a website or an article, you know, you can ask about issues of heartburn, of uh, chest pain, of, you know, changes in um, diarrhea, of constipation, of abdominal pain. Um, but if they aren't really having any of those issues, then we're not going to order testing. Um, and really, when it comes to comorbidities associated with rosacea, the main one is really depression. So this systematic review looked at more than just GI comorbidities. It looked at all of them, and depression, depression, depression was the main one. So if we're going to screen for anything, it's really to screen for depression for these patients. So I'm going to switch gears from rosacea to acne. Um, this is a, a patient, Sebastian, who came in for his, you know, I'd say fairly impressive, moderate acne. Um, and you know, one of the first conversations that, um, well, not really teenage boys have, because they usually come in, just kind of sit in the chair, and the parent talks. Um, but you know, his mom is like, doctor, I need you to tell him to stop eating the pizza, drinking soda. It's causing his breakouts. So 
we, I would say, I'm slowly coming around to the idea that there probably is something related to the connection between what we eat, the gut immune system, and what happens on our skin. And there's more and more coming out about this. But giving up everything that we love is not necessary. I think being smart about what we eat is important. So I'm gonna give you some data in a little bit just about uh, what's going on with diet and acne. But one of the first things I think that we do when we see this patient in our practice is to think about the triple threat. So this is a combination of oral antibiotics, a topical retinoid, and some kind of topical antibiotic or combination topical antibiotic product. And what causes acne, we're learning a bit more about that. So when we're choosing that triple threat, I'm sort of doing it with a reflex. It's just what we do. But the rationale of why we're doing it is also important. So what have we learned about what causes acne? So P-acnes was renamed. It's now C-acnes for cutie bacterium. I'm not making that up. Cutie bacterium. Um, so C. acnes. And what we've learned about C. acnes is that there are some strains that are more pathogenic, that trigger more inflammation by the immune system than other strains. So people with acne are different than people without acne. And it's not just the quality, but certainly the quantity. So if you have more on your skin, it does make a difference. So therefore, it makes sense that we're using topical antibiotics and oral antibiotics. What's also really interesting is we're learning a lot more about how the lipids on the skin cause inflammation. So it's not that you have an oily face and if you just kind of get rid of the oil, it's going to cure acne. It's that the way the lipids components are on the skin, they trigger inflammation. And those lipid components are changed by the bacteria and all of this contributes to the immune response. Part of this is triggered by genetics, but also importantly, this box just showed up called the endocrine factors. So we know that acne is happening around puberty, so there's definitely something contributed by the androgens triggering this innate immune response, facilitating that lipid, causing more of the bacteria to be able to live. So this is all a very complex system, but what we're trying to do is intervene on the most important parts that contribute to what we're seeing on Sebastian's face and that inflammation. If we can quiet down the immune response while we work to decrease the bacteria, while we maybe regulate the lipids, and maybe with diet and other things, we can target some of these um, endocrine factors. So I'm gonna start layering some things on here. So diet, we can intervene on this insulin-like growth factor. So a Mediterranean diet can help decrease the amount of insulin-like growth factor that we have. Insulin-like growth factor can influence the lipid quality and quantity, which then increases inflammation. We can also intervene here with combination birth control, spironolactone, and there's a few posters here that are looking at a novel topical anti-androgen or a blocker of these uh, hormone receptors. So lots of things that we might be able to use. Lipid, isotretinoin really decreases how much lipid is on the skin. When there's less lipid, the C. acnes is unhappy. So we're disrupting kind of the homeostasis that helps maintain acne. And something called an acetyl-coenzyme A carboxylase inhibitor. So this is a novel topical that's being studied now to see if we can prevent some of the sebum that, again, the C. acnes really likes to live in. People, I think, would be really interested in having topicals that target the lipid aspect of acne. 
CBD, everybody's looking at CBD for everything now, and they're looking at how it might influence lipid quality and quantity. And topical retinoids, it's really important, I think, to recognize that topical retinoids are not next to the lipid box. Topical retinoids do not decrease lipid production. They play no role on the sebacytes. People get drier because of the side effect of a topical retinoid, but it actually does not change how much oil the sebaceous gland makes. Topical retinoids change the lining of the epithelium of that hair follicle, so that way it doesn't get plugged quite as easily. And I also put it down next to scarring, because I'm going to show you some data about how topical retinoids can actually be used after we even get rid of acne to help improve the scarring that's on the skin. We can use antibiotics, we can use photodynamic therapy to both influence how much bacteria is on the surface of the skin. And when people are certainly really inflamed, we can use uh, oral steroids, you know, at the beginning of uh, isotretinoin therapy or localized injections uh, to try and get rid of some of those localized lesions. So knowing what we know about what causes acne, it's the lipid, it's the bacteria, it's the immune system, it's hormones. How can we use all these different pieces to try and control people? And especially keeping in mind that we're trying to get people under control, prevent scarring, and reduce how long they're on antibiotics. Because in the UN of acne recommendations, it's not just the US guidelines anymore, but the Canadians, the Europeans, the Japanese are all on board with this idea that antibiotics should not be used longer than three to six months, ideally three to four months orally. And in order to get the best effect and get people off antibiotics, use a concomitant topical or multiple topicals. This is just an excerpt from that guideline saying they're no longer just commenting on which antibiotics are the best. They're commenting on the fact that while these antibiotics are the most recommended, stopping them as quickly as possible is recommended. Because we're number one. We're number one in prescribing oral antibiotics of all disciplines in the United States. Dermatology prescribes more oral antibiotics. I was surprised by this initially, but then I kind of think about my clinic schedule the other day, and I'm like, yeah, actually, I'm guilty. So this is a study looking at use of oral antibiotics in either long courses, which are those tallest blue bars, or short courses, which is something you might use, say, to prevent a post-surgical infection or to treat um, you know, an inflamed cyst. The good news is that these extended courses are going down. So I think getting the message out there through the guidelines for acne, but now increasingly in rosacea and in hydradenitis, is starting to get out there. So why does this patient care about not being antibiotics for a long term? Well, number one, if we keep hoping that the next three months of antibiotic is going to be the time that they come in and they're completely cleared, we've now got them on antibiotics for typically 9 to 12 months before we finally just realize that they need isotretinoin. If we hold ourselves to that three to six month standard, we've now got them on a curative therapy earlier than letting them stay out of control for another three to six months. Secondary infections. So if we're influencing multiple areas of flora, that microbiome that's in the throat and the gut, we're potentially causing problems. And there's studies showing that uh, college students who are on antibiotics for acne have higher rates of pharyngitis, so complications. 
Um, and if we develop resistance in those bacteria to doxycycline, if they do get a cellulitis or something else, then it might not respond to that antibiotic later on. So which antibiotics should we use? There was a little bit in that box you saw earlier. Doxycycline and minocycline still have the best data. The problem is if somebody is uh, young, we can't use it. So they're recommended for eight years and older, and they're not safe in pregnancy. Um, also limited use in breastfeeding. So for those other situations, you can use azithromycin. It's favored over erythromycin. These are uh, pregnancy category B, so safer during those periods, but not as favored as doxycycline or minocycline. If we can't use antibiotics, what can we do? So this is a really long list. The main things are hormonal agents, so birth control pills, spironolactone, another big category, go to isotretinoin, um, looking at lower and lesser things like chemical peels, and at the bottom here, the role of diet. So there are some studies, and these have very good uh, and decent evidence for them. I think, it, for me, it just wasn't part of my routine. It wasn't something I was forced to think about because nobody had said, I couldn't use antibiotics. And now that's more and more a thing. So they've looked at spironolactone. The great news is that there are studies showing that when you're comfortable using spironolactone, patients are on less antibiotics, shorter courses, fewer days. Um, and also this role of acne and diet, and how can we maybe consider that for some of our patients who are interested in that. So this is a study looking at a low glycemic load diet. Uh, so essentially a Mediterranean diet. These were teenagers who had moderate acne. You can see on the left-hand side the before pictures. This is a pretty decent amount of inflammatory acne. Um, so this was a comparison study, and they looked at how well people did after the 12 weeks of really only making this change in their diet. The only other thing they did topically was use a mild cleanser. And you can see here now, the pinkness on those pictures on the right is really that post-inflammatory erythema. It's sort of like a stain is what I tell my patients. It's gonna take a little while to fade, but it's not active acne. They did a lesion count, and looking at both inflammatory and total lesion counts, they saw a reduction before to after. The numbers on the left-hand column are the people who were in the low glycemic load diet. So they had a decrease of 22 lesions total of 16 inflammatory lesions compared to the placebo group who hadn't made any change in their diet. They had a more minor decrease, and this was statistically significant. This study took it a little bit further. Same kind of diet, Mediterranean diet, more whole grains, less white bread, um, more meats, proteins, fish, uh, greens, uh, fruits, and vegetables. This was 10, 26 weeks, so that's a pretty long time. They combined it with metformin. So this is meant to decrease that insulin-like growth factor one, so IGF-1. This is a patient who, again, I'd be thinking about the triple threat when I walk in that room. This was him afterwards of making a dietary change of using a relatively weak acne agent, so azelaic acid, and taking oral nicotinamide. Nicotinamide has um, been talked about, I think, in the past for acne. It's not used as much anymore. It can, can have weak and uh, anti-inflammatory effects. But this is a pretty impressive result. Uh, the challenge, I think, is making that dietary change durable for all the months that somebody may have acne uh, predisposition. So knowing that acne is something that happens usually around 14 to 20, 
and I don't know if everybody can make that kind of dietary change for that period of time. So we need a little more data, but this is pretty interesting. It makes me willing to talk to patients about this as an option. So let's say Sebastian's not really interested in diet as an intervention for his acne. Um, and you know, essentially, for him, antibiotics probably are not going to be a cure just based on how inflammatory his skin looked. So isotretinoin is something I'm turning to faster and earlier um, for these patients. I think just thinking about isotretinoin and how we use it, um, dosing can vary. There's lots of regimens. They can go from low-dose regimens to the highest-dose regimens. I typically will start people at about 40 milligrams daily and then take them up to a maintenance dose that's close to one milligram per kilogram, so about 60 milligrams a day or 80 milligrams a day. You want to make sure they take it with their fattiest meal or largest meal because it'll help absorption. In terms of gold dosing, this is all over the board right now when it comes to research. It's sort of the old rule was you want to try and treat people to be a gold dose of 120 milligrams per kilogram over that course. And it usually would take six to eight months, depending on um, how big they were and how much they were taking a day. But there are lots of studies now showing that some people can do pretty well with less. They're going to clear earlier, and why do we need to make them stay on the medicine and come into those monthly visits if they're going to clear? For other people, it takes a much higher dose. So some of the studies show that if you treat to uh, 200 milligrams per kilogram, especially for more stubborn acne that isn't settling down, that their risk of relapse is a lot lower. So I tend to treat until the person is clear for at least two months. If somebody came up with very, or came in with very severe inflammatory acne, whether was on their face or in lots of places, I'm going to push my gold dose up to about that 200 milligrams per kilogram. So I think in terms of uh, you know, mental rules, my mental rules are now a little more flexible. For people who are less inflamed, maybe like Sebastian, who just didn't really respond that great to oral antibiotics, the lower. For people who are really stubborn, going up to that 200 milligrams per kilogram. And this came up a little bit yesterday, which is there's now a lot more evidence to show that that association or concern for association with isotretinoin and inflammatory bowel disease does not really exist. We're not going to cause inflammatory bowel disease with isotretinoin. Is that some people who are going to get bad acne are also prone to get that inflammatory bowel disease in the first place. So just knowing that that could be a risk. Um, a lot of times people are depressed because they have acne. The best thing to do is get rid of it with something that's effective. So I just tend to talk to the patient and their parents about the fact that this drug is not going to cause the side effect, and if they're already feeling down or altering their activities, the way they interact with their friends or not engaging in clubs, then maybe it's because they are self-conscious and we try and have that conversation. And then this will come up in one of my other talks about trying to do lab testing when it's reasonable, rational, and data-driven. Um, so with isotretinoin, I think we stuck with the package insert for about 20 years longer than we needed to. And we were just doing lab work and getting normal lab work back every month. So now we do it at the beginning to know what their normal is, and then we do it after the second month, so that way we can figure out what the drug has caused. Triglyceride changes are 
expected. If it's not real high, maybe it's around 250, I'm not gonna worry about that person. I don't even require fasting blood work because I expect the change. Um, LFT changes, we do screen for that, so we get lipids and LFTs. Um, LFT minor changes, I'm also not going to worry about that too much. And if everything is only minor, minorly elevated, then they can stop getting their lab testing as long as their review of systems is normal. Um, so we don't require that people go on birth control, but one of the things that comes up, and Jim talked about this really nicely earlier, is you maybe don't always feel confident about the answer you're getting from some of your teenagers about whether they're sexually active or not. Um, and so thinking about birth control and the hesitation of some dermatologists and dermatology providers um, to start birth control pills, um, keeping in mind what we sometimes worry about as this risk of venous thromboembolism. I think if I asked a room full of people and I asked, say, what's the worst side effect that you're worried about with birth control, they're gonna say DVTs. So keeping in mind the DVT risk for any typical woman before birth control is about one to five out of 10,000. When you go on birth control, it's slightly elevated, three to nine out of 10,000. So if you look at those ratios, yes, there's a one and a half or two-fold elevation. We have to keep in mind that the actual rate is pretty low. So I think just for me, keeping those numbers in mind helped me to feel more comfortable to be able to counsel my patients, give them the first three months of birth control and say, you know what, here you go, let's get you started on this medication and I would love it if you could follow up with your you know, family practice you know, provider or your GYN provider so that way they can just you know, monitor this going forward. Because there's a lot more data coming out that for a derm provider that starts birth control, there is a much shorter delay for that patient to ultimately get on curative therapy. But when we say, uh, you need to go get on birth control, there's so many steps and delays between what we're saying and when it actually happens. And that results in that person either being on antibiotics longer or not getting to the curative therapy as quickly. So again, this was a little bit of a, a mind shift for me. And so we get Sebastian better and he comes back in and we're almost done with the isotretinoin or we are done. The old thought was we had to wait six months before we could do anything about his scarring and that's not true anymore. So all the data that said that we should wait to do anything about acne scarring after isotretinoin and sort of the rule was you should wait six months to a year, that's forever to a teenager, that's forever to me and I'm 40. Um, all of this data came from case reports in the 1980s and 90s of patients who went through dermabrasion. 11 total cases informed the nation's recommendation that people with acne should not have anything done for their acne scarring. 11 cases. And it was really the dermabrasion, like the Dremel, like the really old style with stuff flying everywhere. Like nobody does that anymore. We have more precise tools and they are different. There now have been eight times as many cases showing a complete lack of keloid scarring, hypertrophic scarring, and bad side effects when we do the more typical acne interventions. And so there's actually been, a, a, again, a mind shift for what we can and can't do to people when they are on 
or just recently finishing isotretinoin for their acne scarring. So we don't have to wait to do microdermabrasion. We can do that when they're on isotretinoin or right afterwards. Chemical peeling, as long as they're superficial. Cutaneous surgeries, if somebody needs a mole removed, that's okay, do it. Um, and even lasers, the non-ablative and fractionally ablative. You do wanna wait on that really intense mechanical dermabrasion, kind of the old style, and any uh, fully ablative laser, you wanna wait that six months uh, to 12 months after isotretinoin. But it's nice to know that there's better data and we can do some of these things for our patients. But not everybody's really interested in doing something like this, Adapalene, the treatment that I would very often start people on after isotretinoin anyway, can have really great benefits for the scarring. So it's sort of two for one. I'm not only catching any little minor acne blips that happen after isotretinoin, I'm also helping the scarring that's happening. Um, and so this was a study showing a before and after of adapalene 0.3. Uh, it's also been studied in the combo product, adapalene 0.3 with BPO. And the study showed that after six months of daily use, that a lot of patients were clear or almost clear from their scarring so this is not acne anymore, this is scarring, and had fewer indented or atrophic scars. And when we look at that data over time, I love that this was a comparison study. So that lower line is the placebo group. Because we know that a lot of this improvement comes with just time and biology anyway. So what is this drug doing above and beyond just tincture of time would do? So the darker blue line is the drug, and it's showing that the percent of subjects that were clear or almost clear from their scarring was just continuing to go up. So they stopped the study at 24 weeks. But where was the trajectory of this line going even afterwards? Would we see even a higher percentage of people who are clear or almost clear from their acne scarring? And so I tend to start people on a topical retinoid anyway. It's not always adapalene 0.3 because my theory is this is a class effect rather than a specific drug effect. So now rather than stopping isotretinoin, I recommend that they do use a topical retinoid, especially if they're trying to get some extra improvement from their scarring. So as a wrap-up, both acne and rosacea, for both of them, new information on diet. For rosacea, alcohol still doesn't cause it. It's just gonna make the signs more obvious. Um, while there are some associations with GI diseases, you can screen by review of systems, but don't order any tests. Um, the clinical spectrum can vary, so the, I think this is the most important point. This is not just, you know, English, Irish, Scottish people with fair complexions. This is everybody gets rosacea, and it can vary from acne-like papules to redness to burning and stinging to phimomatous changes. And so those symptoms are an important part of rosacea. Thinking about what you're seeing with that patient, whether they do have symptoms, choosing your treatments based on those symptoms and the guides reducing the duration of the antibiotic for those patients, and the use of potentially multiple topicals to target those symptoms and signs that you're seeing on the patient. From the acne side, thinking about adjuvant therapy, adjuvant therapy, adjuvant therapy, to try and reduce the amount of antibiotic that people are on, and whether the use of diet or even metformin can uh, be uh, an option for that particular patient that you're seeing. We're still the most common prescribers of antibiotics, though we're getting better, so try and limit duration. Um, antibiotics, if you've been waiting six months for it to work, 
and it still hasn't worked, it's probably not going to. So it's time to find a different treatment, whether that's isotretinoin or something else. And then with acne scarring, the uh, idea that we don't have to wait if somebody's been on isotretinoin or is still on isotretinoin, and that adapalene topical retinoids can help with the scarring. The end. of this program, you intend to change your patient care. All right, let's see. So how do you handle a patient that's been on oral minocycline for years? So this is a great question, and I've had to do this for myself because I started reading the guidelines and they were all agreeing like I wasn't supposed to be keeping people on antibiotics for years. So I think it's even more awkward to walk into a room and say like the past me was wrong. Um, and so what I tend to do is rather than try and blame it on anyone, and I think that that's what this top scenario is trying to navigate is how do you tell a patient that what somebody recommended was not the right thing? I tend to blame it on the research. So I think it's always okay to walk into a room and say, you know what, there was just some new research and I think that it's you know, telling us that we should make a change in your treatment. Because people love to know that you are reading, number one, and number two, that you're using it to help improve their care. Um, so I think rather than say that was wrong, that person is wrong, reposition it to be the research says. Um, let's see. Let me make sure I answered that question. Yeah. And you know, sometimes I just admit it. I just say, like, I, I'm sorry, I can't continue your antibiotic. Like, I have principles, I have certain data. You can find another person to write your antibiotic. I can't control everyone, but I can control me. And this is what I know. Um, and maybe it took for me to get to 40 to be able to say that. Um, when do you think of using oral ivermectin as a treatment for rosacea flare? So I think ivermectin is a really safe medication. I think one dose of it in some of the studies uh, for rosacea and periorificial dermatitis, it can have a really great effect. I would not get into the habit of using it as an everyday treatment like we do for antibiotics where it's 30 days or 60 days. It's really a one dose effect. Evaluate what the response is after that one dose. And if you're not getting a great improvement, I would move on to something else. Um, alcohol. Oh, great question. So alcohol and antibiotics, um, while doxycycline does get processed through the liver, it's usually not modified in any important way by alcohol. Um, and so it's not, I think, overly a huge strain on the liver to handle both. Um, importantly, you know, for things like methotrexate, we want to be careful. For isotretinoin, we might also want to be careful. We absolutely want to be careful with acetretinin alcohol. But when it comes to um, alcohol, 
on antibiotics. I don't have any uh, stiff rules when it comes to that because I'm not really worried about toxicity. Um, the conversation does come up pretty often about antibiotics and birth control. All the antibiotics that we use to treat acne will not impact the efficacy of birth control. Rifampin is one of the ones that I sometimes use for hydradenitis that interacts with like almost every other medicine a person can take. So um, if you're using rifampin, yes, uh, have that conversation, but for most uh, antibiotics we use for acne and rosacea, no. Uh, reports of rebound flaring with Merveso, um, been told to avoid prescribing. Uh, people can have some rebound flaring with topical vasoconstrictors, but it's not every person. Um, so it's just hard to predict ahead of time which people are going to have a side effect and which ones aren't, and I think that's the challenge. Um, Long-term side effects for use in the eye. Oh, cyclosporin. So great question. Um, cyclosporin, topically, rostasis, has been used in um, some kids who have chronic eye conditions for decades, and there are no long-term side effects uh, for use of that medication. So I wouldn't have any worry about that. Uh, frequency of IPL for uh, the ocular rosacea was every three or four weeks was shown to be effective. Antihistamines. So with antihistamines, my favorite tends to be cetirizine because I think it's a real nice balance and not being too sedating, but also has some pretty good efficacy, so that's my go-to. Um, like with so many things, I think it's very hard to be dogmatic and have only one favorite lotion and one favorite sunscreen and one favorite histamine, um, antihistamine. So I tend to kind of let people be a little bit flexible. I'll give them my first recommendation, but we can try other things after that. Um, how effective is isotretinoin for acne if it's flared by progesterone IUD? Um, so I think that it still can be really effective. I tend to try and take a history figuring out how much of the acne was there before the progesterone IUD, because if there was still a pretty decent amount of acne, then it isn't going to be cured by removing the progesterone IUD, and we still would need to treat it anyway. Um, so honestly, I don't use azithromycin. I avoid macrolides uh, at all cost because they tend to have a very high rate of resistance. Um, so I would have to look up the dosing for you on that one. Uh, topical dapsone and treatment for acne. So topical dapsone, I think, has a strength in that it is really well tolerated. The problem is it is not really very effective. So I don't tend to use it very often at all. For adult women with acne, my go-to is spironolactone. Um, and then I'm still trying to get them on topical retinoids because I try and tell them it's a two-for-one. It's going to treat your acne and you won't have wrinkles and sunspots. Um, Let's see, spironolactone, do you check potassium? So great question. Um, this also comes up in the lab monitoring talk that I'll have later on, but why not hear it twice? No, I don't. So I don't check potassium in relatively young, healthy women who are not on blood pressure medications. The trick is when you start to take blood pressure medications, it can affect how your body holds on to potassium. So I would say in 97% of people, I am not checking potassium. Uh, oratia, 40 milligrams versus low-dose doxy. Um, I have not seen any studies that have looked at that degree of difference, and I think it would be really hard to detect a difference between 40 milligrams and 50 milligrams. So I tend to go on uh, what the insurance will cover. I, of course, love to get tw the 20 milligrams twice a day or 40 milligrams once a day, but if I can't, then I'll have them take 50 milligrams once a day. 
minimum age for patients? Oh, great question. So for spironolactone, I'm using it in pretty much anybody that I would use uh, birth control pills on. I don't see a ton of younger kids because we have Andrea Zangline at my institution. She's like an international acne guru and a pediatric dermatologist. So pretty much anybody under 14 is going to her. But in kids who are 14, 15, 16 um, and older, I would definitely use it. I would not use it in men. So in men, it'll cause gynecomastia. So do not do that. Um, oh, transplant patient, isotretinoin. I'm having trouble thinking of a reason why I would not use it. I'd probably just run it by their transplant team and make sure it's not going to interact with any of their, you know, prograph or anything they're taking for their uh, transplant. But I can't think of another reason why I wouldn't. Um, very often in people who are medically complex, I think um, some of the other speakers earlier talked about this, it's just nice to tell the team, like, you know, there's an oncologist treating somebody, there's a transplant doc treating somebody, like, they are an expert at that person's complex medical history. Just get them on board. They're probably going to return your call really quickly because this is a complex patient. Um, I think uh, nicotinamide is the question here. Uh, comment on when to worry about CBC results for isotretinoin. So I don't check a CBC at all for isotretinoin unless they have something in their history um, that might predispose. So I had a patient who had a history of idiopathic thrombocytopenia. And so for her peace of mind, her mom's peace of mind, and mine, we did check her CBC. But in somebody who doesn't have a history of some kind of hematologic issue in the past, I'm not checking it. Those changes are incredibly rare. Um, Jim Treat, though, has a case for everything. So he, I think, had a case of somebody who got neutropenic or something on isotretinoin. He was telling stories at the back of the room, trying to give a talk up here, Jim. Um, yes, so Jim Treat has a case of, for every story. So whenever I'm trying to cut down, he's like, but, 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 but. Um, so for a patient who quit isotretinoin about two weeks due to side effects, how long do you recommend waiting? Uh, I wouldn't recommend waiting. I think you can do surgery while they're on isotretinoin. I think you can do it within two weeks, two months, two years. Um, no reason to uh, wait from that standpoint. Highest cumulative dose of isotretinoin that I've gone to. So the highest cumulative dose that we tend to go to is about 220 milligrams per kilogram. We then try and stop it, and if necessary, about three to six months later, maybe go on a second course. We have a few families in our area who have been on two, three, four, five courses, but there's usually some amount of time in between those courses just to kind of let their body uh, reacclimate to uh, being without the medication. Thank you so much. This was a long day. You guys are great. We'll see you at the event tonight. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.